0: people may not appreciate that the federal government is on the order of 2.2 million workers, right? So the political appointee strand of that is 4,000 uh, typically. And so you imagine for 4,000 people trying to lead 2.2 million, that's one in 500. That's impossibility. Um, and, you know, th- there, The people who've been working there are doing the same drill year after year after year. It's kind of Groundhog Day, and you're kind of dropping in in mid-movie, trying to make sense of the thing and start directing the ship in another direction. So you have to learn very quickly uh, how things are getting done, what, what the actual order of the day is, and then meet the personalities and have enough um, you know, technical knowledge to make the right change, be it in the drafting of a of a grant agreement, uh, not a grant agreement, but like a a notice of funding availability, uh, or however they're giving the money out, the the regulations, the uh, guidance, but then have the kind of political backbone, the ability to hold fast and, and stay true when when you're going to get a lot of pressure to to uh, to kind of keel keel over.
1: Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by
2: Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. Who is
1: continually looking more and more like an old leprechaun? Uh, today, we have another fantastic episode. You. Look, it's not like you're, you have a giant red beard and you're wearing green all the time these days. That's what true. do you want from me? Um, you're bringing it on, and you're short. Um, <laughs> as, as always, we're grateful that you guys listen in. Uh, be sure to go to AmericanMoment.org. There, you can find episodes of this podcast. I think the fellowship application is about to close real soon, so be sure to. Take a look at that and fill it out real fast if you would like to participate in our fellowship this summer. There's other programs launching very soon. You have the backlog of this show. Uh, Be sure to follow us on Instagram uh, and Twitter and other platforms, by the way. Uh, We're getting a ton of traction on Instagram these days, and it's partially because so many of you follow it and are sharing clips around. So we really do appreciate that. You can keep up to everything we're doing at AmericanMoment.org. Today we had on a fantastic guest, someone who we are honored to be able to call a friend, Uh, Paul Danz directs Heritage's 2025 Presidential Transition Project, organizing policy and personnel recommendations and training for appointees in the next presidential administration. Uh, And you might say, golly gee, that sounds a lot like what American Moment does. That's right. That's why we're on the board of that project and are uh, very involved and and honored to do so. Uh, Prior to joining Heritage, Danz served in the Trump administration as the chief of staff at the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, where he managed the federal agency in charge of human resources policy for more than 2 million federal workers. He also served as OPM's White House liaison and worked integrally with the White House Office of Presidential Personnel to staff the approximately 4,000 presidential appointees across the federal government. In January 2021, President Trump appointed Danz to serve as the chairman of the National Capital Planning Commission. Before his time at OPM, Danz served as a senior advisor in the Office of Community Planning and... Development at the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development, and as an attorney, he has extensive experience in high-stakes commercial litigation. His 20 years of practice include work at several large international law firms in New York City from 1997 to 2012, prior to founding his own law firm. He's a graduate of UVA School of Law, received his graduate and undergraduate degrees from MIT. He lives in South Carolina with his wife and four kids. Uh, Paul is awesome. Uh, he is exactly the right guy to be running the 2025 project. Uh, he's a ton of fun and uh, spins a lot of yarns because he is a boomer at the end of the day. So you'll enjoy <laughs> listening to him do that on the episode. What did you I, make of it, Nick?
2: I, I learned something new about Paul every time I talk to him. And it, and it gets progressively cooler yeah. every time. Like he was talking about being uh, uh, like an OG Trump guy in 2012. Yeah. Like everyone, 2015, 2016, too late to the game. You had to be in 2012 just like Paul. Yeah. It was a he has great po- He has
1: powerful Outerboro white ethnic uh, energy, which is, as we know, <laughs> the Trump base. So we'll go now to Paul Dan's uh, director of Heritage's 2025 presidential transition project. Paul, thank you for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. We've had long conversations uh, at bars, um, a lot like the conversation we're about to have, but I figured it's important to do it on camera, too. Uh, we always like to start with how our guests got to where they are today. You've got a super interesting story, a story that we'd love to see a lot more in D.C. Tell us the tale. How did you end up in this stupid, stupid town?
0: Sure. Well, um, pleasure to be with everyone today. Uh, I don't know if we've done so many bars. Maybe we should add that to the <laughs> yeah. repertoire. It's a, a little bit too much work, yeah. I think. But, we could oh, add too many bougie fancy DC restaurants. <laughs> yeah. We
2: could add a bottle yeah. of whiskey, but then again, it is 10 a.m. Yeah, it is 10 so. a.m. Um,
0: how did I get to Washington? Well, you know, I've always been interested in politics. We, uh, as little kids, we grew up outside um, the capital region in Baltimore. Actually, to back up my dad um was a physician and he uh uh was in Colorado working in healthcare policy migrant he developed probably the first migrant healthcare clinic in the country really delivered a new kind of service um and he came east in 1977 so um we were as little kids walking around Washington doing the Smithsonians learning about the capital and uh Dad moved on to Johns Hopkins at the hospital there, and he's a professor of medicine. Um, and we always just kind of came back and forth through Washington. So growing up around it, we were you know pretty actively engaged locally, also my parents in politics, um, and you know I I'm a lawyer by training. I, I went to MIT undergrad and graduate school I, uh, in economics and then in uh, city planning. So uh, I went to University of Virginia for law school, uh, was president of Federalist Society, uh, really was... Was that uh, in the 90s? That was in the 90s, yeah. yes. I don't know if you guys were born back then. Nope. I'm, uh, <laughs> 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 All right, so if there's still any um, Zoomers still on um, the podcast at this stage... <laughs> um, yeah, this is back in the nineties. Um, it was a lot uh, it was a winter of if you will for conservatives. Um Clinton had come into office. Um they were very ascendant. Um, this was the forty uh days out in the wilderness, if you will. Um we uh you know, I was I was always attracted with the Federalist Society message about how some daring students stood up at Yale Law School and challenged the uh, Hegemony there, and really was trying to speak truth to power. So um, that was that was an initial um, attraction. Um, even back back in the early nineties, I, I ultimately our came our coming of age for political was you know we were ethnic Catholics um, who were you know Democrats, uh, t- tried and true. My grandparents were probably the first breakaway. Uh, Goldwater Republicans We, we you know, I come from a uh, pure-blooded deplorable mix. Um, my parents were the first to go to college in their families. My my grandfather was a merchant marine at sea for 40 years. And uh, my mom's family's all French Canadian mill workers um, from Rhode Island. So, um, you know, they had basically come up through the JFK um, Kennedy-esque, you know, uh, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And they came to Washington, um, very bright-eyed and and optimistic. And that was a real, you know, point in American history where I think we we really could hopefully one day get back to that kind of excitement. And I, that's why I'm I'm hoping you know things like American Moment can help bring us there. Um, so they they were of all things. Um, in the U.S. government, that was their first jobs. My my dad was going to be drafted into Vietnam, but um, was brought into the public health service. So he's a uniformed officer and worked in infectious disease up in NIH. And my mom was a chemist, and she had gone to Trinity College. So um, they were introduced by their parish priest here in Washington and got married. So we as little kids growing up and coming back, we were out in Colorado and then came East and we'd heard about mom and dad growing up and, and Washington, it was always kind of like a uh, wonder years to come here. So I've always for better, or for worse, had a positive association of Washington of what it could be.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, and you know, how did I ultimately get here? Well, I was, like I said, I was president of Federalist Society in, uh, Virginia and, um, kind of made a decision, you know, I'm, I'm, cut, I'm going cold turkey on the politics. Been knee-deep in debt. In those days, um, us students, we had to pay for our own college, mm-hmm. and we also had to pay for our own debt, and there was no um, kind of gifting from Uncle Joe. Um, so, you know, for, faced with that reality, it was kind of pack off to the big firms in New York and get your nose to the grindstone. So I went and did commercial litigation in New
1: York off and on for about the last twenty years in big firms. Gotcha. And so you were working, I think, in your own uh, firm that you had founded. Um, and then President Trump gets elected. Did you immediately try to come to D.C.? What happened? Yeah,
0: I. Uh, you know, I've been in these big firms, and we'll get in. I understand a little later on about the nature of, of big firm practice and and uh, kind of the challenges for being a conservative or even libertarian lawyer, for that matter. Um, anyone interested in our basic freedoms and rights. Um, I had worked on big cases, uh, Chevron Ecuador. For those who know, I was the one who came up with the idea to go after the documentary outtakes that unravel the huge fraud against Chevron. And in particular, our clients who were um, Chevron attorneys who are basically being pilloried uh, with false accusations. Um, we managed to get Uh, the outtakes from a documentary movie that was kind of a Michael Moore sort of production. Well, not by Michael Moore, but the notion was to put pressure on the company to settle. So they had taken 600 hours of footage and um, condensed that into a two-hour kind of hit job. And the notion was what's in the other 598 hours. And this was at the height, uh, or the nadir, if you will, nadir, of uh reality television where everyone was taking a camera crew wherever they went. And for those attorneys or law students listening to this, it, you should be hearing alarm bells. You should not be taking in cameras to uh, confidential situations <laughs> and creating a record, uh, a digital one. So um, that notion and uh, some clever lawyering on our side um, really led to these outtakes, which was a spectacular uh you know, success. And, um, I went on to do my own firm after that. Uh, I'd always kind of been a big Trump fan. And, um, again, I had kind of gone agnostic from politics. Yeah. You where, were a white ethnic from New York. It was kind of in, <laughs> in your DNA like
1: Donald Trump.
0: <laughs> yeah. You know, I was, um, again, back to the nineties here. I flew on the Trump shuttle. I don't know if folks remember that. Wow. What's that? What's that? You've never shuttle. heard of the Trump no. Shuttle? Holy <laughs> cow! This is how um, the paradigm shift that Donald Trump thinks about, right? So, um, the Trump Shuttle used to be the, I believe, maybe the Eastern Airlines Shuttle, and you know, Washington to New York, New York to Boston, Washington to Boston. But um, I think he bought it out of the bankruptcy. But the the major innovation there was every seat was first class, and everything was on on you know, unassigned seats. So uh, these shuttles would come and go every half hour on, or every hour on the half hour, something like that out of LaGuardia, the Marine Air Terminal. And um, it was just the, one of these great things of 20th century engineering to be able to walk in. This pretty pre-911. You basically walk right up to the airport, get on the plane, and you could be like eating breakfast in Washington like an hour later. Wow. It was Didn't really. Didn't it
2: have like Trump like emblazoned on oh, the side? Yeah, it had, it yeah. Had,
0: if, I, if I recall. Yeah, you know, it's, it's awesome. now it's the US air shuttle became American shuttle, and then they don't so much do it every hour. But um, these were in the days when they were competing. So that Trump, you know, he was doing a lot of big things. I think, you know, um, not in in addition to the buildings and, and the and the real, uh, glassy sort of things he pull off but yeah my you know my my grandparents grew up in in New York like i said my dad was born there and they saw the f- decline of it and to see someone like Trump come back with this can do spirit start building on the skyline again um you know we were new york post readers you know that's that's our when i when i moved into my building the original
1: deplorables the original yeah. deplorables <laughs>
0: um yeah i i lived in a big um Uh, apartment building on the upper West side and maybe 160 units. And I think they'd get about three copies of the post a day there. (laughs) Um, Two for uh, maybe one for another neighbor, one for me and one for the doorman.
1: (laughs) That tells you. (laughs) Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, But uh, yeah, I saw, you know, I saw Trump coming. I was actually a Trump guy probably back in 2011, Mm -hmm. if you will. I was rooting for him, um, you know i had i had some some serious academic questioning about the birthplace of a former president if you will <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so um <laughs> trump you know if if you go back he 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 was good at uh, he, question. F- he yeah. forced the issue you know it looked mm-hmm. like he was going to be running for president in 2012 mm-hmm. so uh we were all with bated breath when he went up to uh, new hampshire to make a big announcement um, but it wasn't the announcement we hoped for. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was I was excited to see him run in fifteen, and um, you know, it's like uh, I I always thought that he was going to be somewhat tethered with his number one show, but people couldn't. You know, I worked on uh, presidential campaigns in the closing days on what's called the Republican National Lawyers Association. So I'd been out there in two thousand four in Ohio. 2008 in uh, Philadelphia, 2012 in New Hampshire. And with each iteration, I just saw us, you know, losing the vote. Um, There was no passion in people. People didn't have a reason for voting, um, irrespective of what they might be told for issue was on their side. And um, we were hungry for a candidate who could really speak, speak to Americans. So I thought, you know, uh, Donald Trump delivered on that score
2: I will say it's like not I don't know if I've ever met someone who was like an OG Trump like 2012 you know every a, everyone else a- you know that that's been formed since 2015 they're old <laughs> yes you you were you were the OG well, you know, it, it's like even Roger Stone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, now we
0: see on the internet some of his hits on Oprah and the like and yeah. and it's really prescient sort of things. I mean, he obviously is uh a master of a lot of trades and um you know, not the least of it is charisma. You know, it's it's he he sucks the air out of the room. So, um that's what we needed. I mean, we we really needed someone who could who could lay it on straight for people who could Who, you know, had a respect for the common man, but could also see what was going on in these upper echelons of New York society and finance. And, um, it's a it's a rare breed to find in someone. So, yeah, I, I was excited to see him. I you know I never was a huge Apprentice fan, but that's really I I just tried to wean myself from TV. Yeah. So yeah, get off the TV for those folks.
1: So if you're, you're still on it. a on high powered lawyer who is an OG Trump fan, um, clearly very smart. Uh, and willing to serve, it it has to have been super easy for you to just get into a super high role of the administration, right? How, yeah. To tell us the story of of how exactly that happened. Well,
0: that you know that really is, leads to it. Sir um, Rob's probably bringing in yeah. why why I'm doing what I'm doing, but um, yeah, you would have thought that I'd kind of have a glide path in. Um, you know, I had the credentials, I had the experience. Um, I had worked with the Republican National Lawyers Association. I had Fed connections, Um, but I was a New Yorker, you know, and as well, the president's a New Yorker too, so you should be marching right in. Um, You know, maybe in retrospect, I should have just marched right in on Fifth Avenue, but I I, I was a little hesitant on that um, score. But um, finding the way into the admin was, you know, for an, an a political newcomer and outsider extremely difficult to um, ferret out. Um, the majority of the people were in shock after the election. Uh, that and it was kind of hard to say who was actually doing the preparations for the new administration. I had been. Um, I think it's fair to say it was. It's off the record, so I will keep all identities um, nameless. But uh, the Federalist Society, I was on the steering chapter steering committee of the new york lawyers chapter so this is kind of in a uh pretty you know rarefied group of of partners and they you know they have federal judges from time to time and and important um uh media personalities and the like and they will have a debate and then a dinner that's kind of off the record and um they kind of gone around the table. Uh, this was in January 2016, and um, said, "Okay, well, for the upcoming Republican um, primaries, tell us um, who you like, and then who you think is going to win." So it's this big U-shaped table, maybe forty people, kind of like a, of um, you know, a big U, and uh, we're going down. This is at the. Women's National Republican Club at 51st and Fifth Avenue. It's a very august place, you know, with portraitures and candlelight and people staring down with kind of gray hair and uh candelabras and all that. And we're going out of the room and people are like, I like Jeb. I like Marco. I like Jeb. I like, uh, you know, like and uh it's coming close to me. I'm like, geez. No one's even said Trump yet. And we're like seven blocks down from the man's house. We're in New York and he's the leading candidate yeah. <laughs> at this stage. I'm like, and I'm one of the younger people in the room, if you will. Um, so it got to me and I was like, well, um, I like Trump and I think he's going to win. And I like him because I'm sick of losing.
1: Yeah. You know, how and- many things got thrown at you? <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely
0: kind of like, ooh, a lot of faces. And, um, you know, I kind of spoke my piece on that, and uh, people were kind of a little out of Twitter, and then it kept going around the rest of you till it got to the very last person, a woman who was in town uh, from, from I believe, Michigan perhaps, and she just kind of swivels around at me and looks, and just goes, I never thought I'd meet another Trump fan. Nice. Um So it basically, it was the two of us, probably the youngest folks in the room. I hope she made it into the admin. But, um, it kind of gives you a sense where in january twenty sixteen prior to any any um caucus or or uh primary, where kind of the intelligentsia on the conservative side sat mm-hmm. and um so it was it was a big you know for them, I felt like they they woke up to Christmas morning on the morning of November ninth there um I had gone out on, again, to work the polls and and the legal war room in uh, Allegheny County, Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh. And really saw, I spent a week there before the election and just saw the groundswell. It was amazing. That's a Democrat area, but um, through some grassroots efforts of getting out the vote, um, one called the Mighty Texas Strike Force, which became the Mighty American Strike Force. They, This is a group of uh, red state folks, retirees, uh, self-employed business folks. I know a who, lot of them. Who, who, yeah, good the people. Good yeah. folks. Yeah. And uh, they basically come up to blue states and do get out the vote on their own nickel. It was really tremendous at that to see the, um, the folks get out the vote there. We doubled the vote in Allegheny County and brought in, Brought in Pennsylvania. Um, so so goes as Pennsylvania goes, so goes the
1: country. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, so January twenty seventeen rolls around. Were you instantly in the administration or did it take <laughs> So
0: time? I'm like sending my resume around and you know, there's this uh website. Everyone has to go through the website, right? Apply yeah. um for whatever it was, makeamericagreat.com dot com or something. Um, but it was the president's transition site. And I'm trying to have meetings with the Federalist Society and see who they can jockey my resume. But, um, no, it was a cricket, so It really was. And, uh, you know, I just basically, this Chevron case was one of the biggest in the whole country, actually, in 21st century legal business. If you're a litigator, you know about this case. So mm-hmm. between that and, you know, my bona fides from years of working the polls and, all the way back to FedSoc, I thought I'd, I'd get a little more traction. I didn't, you know. Um, I, you know, who do you you email? If, you almost have to come down here and actually press the flesh. You know, we had two young kids in watch up in New York. Um, my wife runs her own business. I'm managing that. My law firm. I can't really come and schmooze. And um, yeah, it was it was really going nowhere. And uh, I I don't know. I I. I took comfort in the fact that all these other kind of based Trump people were also going nowhere. It was like, what's kind of going on here, you know? And we heard, you know, people... I have this recollection in my head that I was told some some thinking was they were not going to fill up all the political appointments, that they were going to lead by example, which I thought was (laughs) buffoonery. But it was essentially like, well, we as Republicans like to... A limited government so we're gonna
1: start with ourselves yeah um <laughs> it's like saying i'd like to lose weight so i'm gonna chop off fingers yeah. <laughs> so um yeah it
0: it was basically going nowhere so mm. resumes into the circular file um you know and then i kind of moved on you know you're kind of like well you know uh you're listening to this, and you're up in the crucible of the Upper West Side. They're all giddy with the impeachment of Trump. Oh, his days are numbered. Blah blah blah. And so you're kind of suffering through this, but at the same time, you have a little, a little bit of um, angst, or you know, um, you know, the fact that you're not making any traction getting into Washington. So, yeah.
2: who are the kinds of people that were getting the fast track? Into the administration in those days. Okay, well,
0: I think the question number one was: Have you previously served in government? Okay, that's the first question on the thing, and that would be well. Who, who everyone can do the math backwards is like that's a Bush appointee, right? So everyone who had formerly been in uh, as a Republican appointee basically got the got the um, kind of fast track in, as far as I understand. Um, Claiming that that somehow would be an advantage that you knew where the bathrooms were located, <laughs> uh, you know. It's to be fair. We there's a lot of good folks who served in those administrations, and we definitely want continuity. Some, I think I forward
1: are good people. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, but I believe that was the large, the main, and you know, when I I actually uh, got in finally in in the summer of well. Late fall twenty eighteen, I'd come down for another Federalist. They have their lawyers chapter every November. Basically at this stage I'd kinda of given up on the hope of, of getting into the admin. And I kind of found some people around the periphery of that who had who had also kind of been on on the sideline and uh, connected through them. Next thing I know I'd met a guy, James Bacon, who was Patriot. Uh, a patriot. <laughs> go on to uh be one of the youngest um, I guess chief operating officers of, of PPO, the presidential personnel office but James was um, then a, a lowly college student. he was they, they made fun of a lot of the of the Trump appointees. they're not even college grads they're you know um, well James had actually been on the campaign I think since 15 he had he had basically uh, stopped going to college at NYU and just started volunteering on the campaign. Mm-hmm. Um so James was the deputy White House liaison at HUD and came around that oh yeah I actually have a graduate degree in MIT in city planning and you know I had done all this kind of economic development work in my early career so I do have subject matter expertise that would fit well at HUD and Dr Carson being there was it was a very good avenue to get in so I was kind of able to go through that route.
1: What role did you end up in?
0: I was uh, a senior advisor for the Office of Community Planning and Development. Mm-hmm. So, so demystify that for us. Okay, what so, does well, that HUD, <laughs> I didn't realize, and, and this is a lot, what we hope to get in our project is like, you don't realize that the federal government is just... Um, an avalanche of money shooting out of various agencies, right? So it's like kind of trying to tame the spew of money and direct it in the right way is what you're doing when you get to an agency. Mm-hmm. A place like HUD is the hose con- is on, you just have hose, to point it yeah. in the right direction. <laughs> yeah, and hopefully kind of cut it back over yeah. time as much as you can. Um, that is uh, so HUD is a grant making agency in a large measure. And this is uh, community planning and development. So they do block development grants, which are big chunks of money given out to to states and localities to ostensibly do, do development. But in reality, it is a patronage kind of factory for a lot of, of, of left-leaning causes. Um, as well, they administer the aid after uh, serious disasters when FEMA leaves cpd comes in from hud so Mm -hmm. they had large disaster portfolios of money back in the days when five billion was a big deal yeah um so we were administering aid for puerto rico and and uh various other storms still um down in florida uh this so this was interesting to kind of get in there and see they also do homelessness that's a big part now. Homelessness is spread all over the USG in mm-hmm. terms of who owns it, but it's really one of the centerpieces is at HUD, mm-hmm. and um, that it was a real baptism to learn how the agency worked, mm-hmm. how um, how it causes
1: homelessness. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, you know,
0: people may not appreciate that the federal government is on the order of two point two million workers, right? So the political appointee strand of that is four thousand. Uh, typically, and so you imagine four four thousand people trying to lead two point two million. That's one in five hundred. That's impossibility. Um, and you know, th- there the people who've been working there are doing the same drill year after year after year. It's kind of Groundhog Day, and you're kind of dropping in in mid movie trying to make sense of the thing and start directing the ship in another direction. So um, you have to learn very quickly. Uh, how things are getting done, what, what the actual um, order of the day is, and then meet the personalities and have enough um, you know, technical knowledge to make the right change, be it in the drafting of a, of a grant agreement, uh, not a grant agreement, but like a, a notice of funding availability, uh, or however they're giving the money out, the, the regulations, the uh, guidance. But then have the kind of political backbone and and you know the ability to hold fast and, and stay true when when you're going to get a lot of pressure to to uh, to kind of keel, keel over.
2: What are some of the ways that these uh, you know career staff obstruct the things? I mean, you're saying you know 2.2 million of them uh, versus 4,000 political appointees of particular political persuasion. How do they get in the way of the things that a president wants to do?
0: Well, I don't think it's so much they obstruct, but they, it's more lazy politicals and clueless politicals. So they do all the work for them. Mm. And it's, um, that's what you really have to watch out for. When you're coming in to do this job, you better take it seriously as work. You know, This is, this is duty along the same ways that someone's going to serve in the military. Um, and you're going to have to work long hours. And you're gonna maybe have to go without, you know, some of the funner things in life. Family's gonna take a little bit of a hit. Um, what happens is, like I say, you come in, and a lot of people are from various successful walks of life. They're used to managing and delegating responsibility. They want to believe that that these folks beneath them can be given a lot of uh, a lot of uh, leeway, but they forget that they didn't hire these people mm-hmm. and these. These folks were there before, and they'll be there after. And you know, the, the the majority of the federal workforce, and this is documented, is leans left. You know, some of the voting patterns are up to ninety percent. So, in today's really um, divisive culture, it's hard for someone to, even the most noble civil servant, to kind of put that to the side and and kind of take political direction. Um, so I think in the main, there, there is obstruction, to be sure. Um, but I think it's more that that the um, politicals kind of let themselves get led around by the nose. And that, that starts by not wanting to, to do the hard work. So an example might be, well, there's a drafting of, of a notice that comes up every year. Well, what do they start with the draft? They take the draft from last year, or in this case, they take the draft from the Obama administration. And you have to start marking it up early. If you're not going to those initial committee meetings and sitting down with the folks, decisions are going to be "quote unquote" made that should never be going in that direction. Yeah. So, and that's the fault of what somebody not attending a meeting that they might think is, you know, not helpful. You know, the bottom line is we need many more eyes and ears, many more technicians underground to handle this sort of stuff but
1: um, so the idea of not filling all the roles because of small government is stupid because the only way you shrink the government is by having the manpower to
0: and every every dollar spent on on a a healthy political appointee could be ten fold a hundred fold return yeah Yeah. um you know that the what will happen is this thing can operate on autopilot they'd be just a as soon, happy that you came and you went to your cocktail parties, and you had your birthday cakes around the office, and you know maybe a couple ribbon cuttings, and you got to go on a little international junket, and meanwhile everything else is kind of going at the same level. It's gone with the prior administration. So, um, you know, there's there's more malign stuff to be sure that's happening. Uh, I think in the in the U.S. government, so much of our work. Is now farmed out to, and this goes for both sides of the aisle. It's farmed out to Beltway Bandit contracting, and that's you know the federal contractors are in the order of 16 million people. So now you see woke corporations, contracting corporations, doing the work on on padded up government contracts and feeding that in to politicals to get rubber stamped as the U.S. government's position say on homelessness. Um, so that it, to deconstruct this whole thing is gonna take a lot of, of work, but it's gonna, number one, take very talented people ready to come in and serve.
1: You were part of helping make that happen um, in the next job that you had in the administration. Tell us what you did at the um, Office of Personnel Management.
0: So I had done about six months there at HUD, and I was working on California homelessness. That's a story we can tell a little bit later. But um, basically running into a lot of brick walls. And and most of the brick walls were, believe it or not, against our own appointees. So a lot of well-meaning based folks were basically being clipped at the knees um, by folks who had gotten into the admin much earlier than we had. Um, I was getting pretty dispirited about this. I was pretty close to leaving and um you know I kind of been told, hey, you can go work on faith based initiatives. And faith based initiatives not at any means to knock it, but in, in certain, you know, that's like putting someone out to pasture. Yeah. Unfortunately. That's kind it's of like, like Oh, hey, you believe something? Oh, yeah, Why okay. don't you go do the you, go there, initiatives. Yeah, you <laughs> And and the and the awful thing is that they should be front and center. But, you know, in, in this kind of um world of of the government even in the administration they they give you a nebulous title and a job that doesn't have any any real reporting requirement and and then your great ideas never get greenlit mm-hmm. so that that's what that's a recipe for so anyways uh the big news came with with uh president trump and the and the second phony or i get the impeachments mixed up there are so many phony ones but um basically uh you know when the impeachment stuff went down in February twenty 2020, twenty twenty nineteen twenty twenty January twentieth, um, you know the boss kind of got new uh new air under his wings, and he brought John McIntyre in to lead PPO, and soon thereafter James Bacon, my friend from HUD, was brought into PPO. So they had asked me, um, hey, would you consider leaving and going to a different agency? And I actually, it felt like, hey, no, I really want to dig into HUD. This is what I do. But I let go of that. I said, yeah, tell me where you need me. And uh, they, they said, well, there's a job, White House liaison at the Office of Personnel Management. And I was like, Office of Personnel Management. Okay, sure. <laughs> <laughs> then I hung up the phone and I Googled Office of Personnel Management. <laughs> um, and I go, whew. Yeah, good. It's not the boring one. That's uh, <laughs> OMB. I'm kidding. <getting> <laughs> no No, uh, and that's for all my OMB um, friends there. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of being jocular about it. But, you know, Office of Personal Management is the HR uh, essentially agency for the federal government, and that superintends the 2.2 million federal workforce as well as kind of being the first among equals for the White House liaisons for political hiring. So, all pretty much well, anybody who got a job from that point on in the Trump administration, I signed their paperwork. Wow. So, um, that is actually through the director of the Office of Personal Management, and that's descending upon the White House liaison, the power to essentially have the president exercise his appointment powers under Article Two of the Constitution and, and Title V of the United States Code. So um, it's a big job, and if it's not run properly, it can really gum up the works. And um, like I said, I had very limited experience in HR. Usually when they're ushering me out of a law firm, I, I meet the HR folks. Um, and when they're, <laughs> <laughs> um, So I didn't have a great um, HR background but i had kind of a common sense approach to it like we won this election elections have consequences we want to start putting people in positions who can make decisions that are aligned with what the president told the voters i didn't think that was too radical a notion so um kind of got under the hood there and started looking at how we can number one take charge of this important agency where um you know the political hiring had been completely gummed up. Uh, one thing, like uh, Nick, you were asking, um, how can how can they interfere with the agenda? And it's by slow walking. Um, I'd like to write a book one day, like 101 tricks that the, the silly careers play, but um, chief among them is slow walking things. There's a lot of bureaucrat, uh, bureaucrat tricks and um, putting something, on a really a, a tenu a, a long um, path um, will make the applicant give up, right? So a number of us are out there in the real world, going, "Hey, you know, I've sent in my paperwork. What's going on? I, I can't keep waiting. I got to take this other job offer. We got to move. I got to re up my rent. You know, it's just it. These things have to happen quickly. So um, part of that was um, all the White House liaisons who were initially in the buildings had been kind of clueless and you turn to the career and you say, okay, how does this work? And if you don't ask a a really direct set of questions, you're never going to get the full answer out of people. Um, Ultimately we learned that the Obama administration had essentially taken over political hiring and, and run it themselves independent of the careers. That's actually proper. That's exactly what they should have done. But our folks came in and they were clueless and lazy in a lot of cases and were, essentially saying, okay, tell me what next to do. And they're like, okay, well, you have to do this form and this form and then give it back to me and I'll enter it onto the system and and we'll see. And, you know, I'm looking at their resume and they don't quite have four years experience working in coalitions. So I think that price that you want to pay them is going to be excessive. And so you had careers essentially judging what the hiring for the political was. The politicals were trying to make a case out to a career to bring on a political. And it was absurd. So I said, first of all, we're going to learn to do the computer coding. We're going to get the permission to 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 work on this. And, and we did that. And we said, now we can process our own paperwork. We don't need to go to a career HR officer and be... And, you know, this was agency wide across the whole USG. Some agencies worked better with their White House leaders on some not, but we essentially said, no, 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 we're, we're in charge here. We won the election. Our secretary sits on top of this agency and, and our hiring is going to be done, um, toot sweet. And, um, so part of that was kind of just getting this, this other bureaucrat system out of the way. And then, you know, kind of. Looking at positions and saying, no, these should be occupied by careers. A lot of the positions, and, and you'll look at something folks might look at, this called the Plum Book, right? It's published um, and it lists all the senior jobs in the administration, including those that are politically appointed, as well as those which are termed career reserved under the law. In most cases, a uh, position can be either it can be staffed by a career or a political appointee, and um, you know, in 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 practice, a lot of places are kind of kept as careers for one reason or another. I mean, probably can't get into everything today, but um, really important policy making decisions are made in a number of these positions, and they absolutely should be staffed by someone with the with the political antenna of of the agenda in mind. So kind of going through these org charts and top line and saying, no, we're we're gonna put politicals in these very important positions and and that's what we did. And that just by opening that up at OPM, it, it had massive ripple effects across the US government. So in that period, that year of of the McIntyre um reign, if you will, was we finally got, I think, all the all the cylinders going and and James and his team brought in thousand new political appointees and really began to uh, get traction on the agenda. So, um, you know, I think there were a lot of people, good folks who had gotten in in those first three years. But I would say in the main, there were a lot of people like Anonymous and the rest who should never have been within a country mile of a job like that. And, And you wonder why a lot of the things happened like they did. And that's the reason for it.
1: It's so incredibly interesting. And, you know, the, the the thing that keeps me up at night so frequently is, like, what if you guys had had another term? I mean, you guys could have changed everything. And Well, it, there is another election coming up. Well, that's what <laughs> I hear. <laughs> There's still time. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it also shows, you know, that that repository of knowledge that was built up in that team um, in the last year at PPO and OPM um, needs to continue doing um, what they were doing, uh, even when we're out of power. And and thankfully, that's happening. And there's uh, people like, you know, Trip Hemingway has got his o- operation. Uh, James is, is around helping with stuff. Uh, you know, everyone is still very engaged in this and and you, uh, in many cases, chief amongst them. What are you doing now at, at the Heritage Foundation? Uh, what What crazy operation do they have you running there? And what's the hope for it?
0: Well, big hope and it's an American moments part of it. Um, I, you know, after the admin, I, I went home uh, kind of in this Cincinnati sort of spirit, returned to the farm. Yeah. Um, our farm being in Fort Mill, South Carolina in a <laughs> subdivision. Um, but, you know, it was really focused on the family, if you will. Um, and we were, we were expecting number four at the time, but like I said to my appointees when we're leaving, it's like, we're God, country and family. And now's the time to go put a little more emphasis on the God and family part of that, but we'll be back for the country thing. So, you know, we have to always remember as conservatives why we're even doing this in the first place. Um, I got a call to, um, you know, from a, a PPO colleague of mine saying, you know, that heritage was, um, you know, uh, leading an effort they wanted to really start preparing uh for the next presidential administration Kevin Roberts came to the helm and um and it's really been amazing to see the changes um in and, and you know the new mission of heritage and it's it's a reinvigoration of its old merit mission and um it was really uh great to start working with the people in the building too and, and kind of like everyone's now focused on 2025. But what Kevin fundamentally said was, this can't be a heritage thing. This has to be a movement-wide thing. Um, heritage is the big sibling, right? We're going on our 50th anniversary. And what we have are resources, and we have convening power. And convening power means that you know we have a lot of contacts all over the, uh, the conservative sphere. And what we can do is bring people together in, in a meeting. So what we did was uh, they asked me to kind of envision what wh- how we could best prepare for my short stint in the government. And really, my, my point is we have to bring new people in. We have to bring new blood to Washington. We have to start telling people ahead of time, come to Washington, and we need to tell them this is the job in Washington. This is how it works. And we want to tell them also how this is essentially our code of beliefs. And you have to be... Pretty well aligned with these. If you're not, don't, don't kid yourself and don't waste anyone's time because this is, we, we're here to do an agenda. We're not here to burnish our resumes and get to the next perch at your corporate law firm. Yeah. Um, so we also needed a battle plan. So what we did was we formed out Project 2025, which is now a coalition of 50 of the leading conservative groups. Um, and we have come together and built what we call a four-pillar plan. This has never really been done in our movement to come together as a group of of kind of the leading conservative thinkers and organizations and plan well in advance, two years plus to prepare. And uh, so we're we're doing a plan in four pillars. I can get into that. Um, pillar one is is we're writing what's called Mandate for Leadership, the Conservative Promise, 2024. Mandate for Leadership was famously a book that Heritage Foundation put out in its infancy and delivered to then-president-elect Reagan. And it was essentially a policy prescription, agency by agency, uh, for what would become essentially the Reagan Revolution. Um, This was written in the summer of 1980 by a group of 350 kind of people in and out of government, not from heritage, the majority of outside heritage, and it became a very useful tool. So we said, well, we're going to redo that this year, and we're going to also kind of go back to how it was in 1980, and we're going to write it with the majority of the folks outside of heritage. Um, so that book is actually going to be coming out in, t- in uh, two months' time, April, ni- uh, April 19th. Um, the second pillar is, uh, we're building a massive database, if you will, to really bring into the 21st century, this political hiring. What we want to do is take all of our members, our board of advisors, this coalition and get their personal recommendations. And we want to kind of use that as a clearinghouse where various organizations can recommend, uh, individuals, and we can see commonalities among those recommendations as well. People can flag issues and folks that really shouldn't be there. Um, but what we're really building is, is what we call a conservative LinkedIn. So this will allow all anyone listening to this program to essentially build his or her own profile and, and develop it. And, you know, you'll upload your resume and your social media and take, you know, kind of some diagnostic on your political leanings as well your background and um, amplify your case why you would like a job you can indicate where you want to work and what your what your um, skill set is and uh, we we're going to be able to say, this is the central place. You, you don't have to send your resume around anymore. You don't have to worry about it. You know, you can, you can ask somebody to put in a recommendation and they'll send the recommendation in to, to Project 2025 and we'll be able to see all this coming to one place. Um, eventually, we'll be able to make recommendations to the incoming administration through their transition team and say, this is, this is a, a team that would work really well at the Department of Labor. So we're going to take these, these profiles and um, match them up, if you will, to almost an electronic uh, organization chart and pull up various profiles of people for consideration. Um, third, the folks in, that, in those profiles, we're going to ask them to take online courses. This is Pillar 3. It's our Presidential Administration Academy. So this is for people who have served and people who have never been in government. Um, some of the rudimentary, um, this is how the agency functions, or this is how you can get a job. This is the, the process of filling out a security clearance. This is what suitability means to, um, here's how you work effectively with career officials. And this is your endpoint in a, in a policy, um, to get policy interagency made up. Um, We'll be getting more active, higher level people like uh, general counsel school or like a CFO school. And later on in 2024, we'll have conferences. So it's really to teach people what they're going to be doing in government. Then the fourth prong is what we call our playbook. And that's really getting people together to start drafting the first 180 days of work. So agencies are, um, at root lawmaking bodies for better or for worse, through regulations and, um, writing regulations and pulling bad regulations down is a lot of effort. So really getting folks working on that early on and as well as, you know, the policy and some of, of the various, um, reorganization strategies and personal strategies. That might come of of a of a takeover when 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 you march in the door on the 20th of January, what you're going to do in the next 108 days. So it's a battle plan. So at the end of the day, in our we're going to have a group of folks in in our database who are aligned in our database of pillar two, who are aligned with the book in Pillar One, the precepts in that, who've completed some of the coursework in pillar three, and who maybe have even gone to start working on some of the drafting of register of legislation and regulations that they may be working on when they get in the door on january 20th so that's our integrated plan
1: it's fascinating that you're the person running something like this because you're exactly the kind of person who should be running something like this i mean you you experienced a whole set of challenges in the last year of the administration, and, and have been able to hopefully build up this project to to directly respond to to some of those issues. I, I'd be curious, you know, small examples, even medium examples, just practically speaking. If if you had had something like this um, last time, what would it have in, enabled you guys to do inside the administration that that's now possible?
0: Well, thank you. I mean, I I feel like. Um, you know, <laughs> Here's the weird thing in life I'm I'm realizing as I get older and particularly in Washington. It's like you keep thinking to yourself, no, someone's got this, right? This is really important. They're
1: gonna- One of the adults has a plan, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, so, they don't. So true.
0: So the, if anyone takes a message away from this hour, it's like, no, you got to step up and start creating it yourself. Yeah. I mean- You guys are perfect examples of a group that's filling a void that you just saw. Yeah. What are these shithead kids doing in DC? It's like, well, Um, I'm sorry.
1: No one else is doing it.
0: You got, you know, I would have liked to think that this was going on and it's kind of hard to believe that it hasn't been going on. And, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure the left has, you know, they're, they're just myriads more organized and, and prepared than we are. That said, if we had had some of this, I think, obviously I might have gone to work a lot earlier in the Trump admin, Mm -hmm. but I think um, the Trump admin hopefully would have been, uh, President Trump and the group accomplished so much in the the spite of so much headwinds. But um, had there been a little bit more of a plan, I think uh, you would have seen some of the initial missteps potentially would have been avoided and um you would have been able to point to something and say no that's really not our take on on homelessness or this isn't you know uh really uh, the conservative view viewpoint we should be aiming towards so i think you see a lot more alignment too um so we'll see you know it's 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 a big it's a huge undertaking but we really have um so many positive skilled people here um I encourage everyone to go to project2025.org, find out more about it, and sign up. We're going to be rolling out a lot more in the coming month or two, but that's an initial place where you can, you can register your
1: interest. And we'll link all that up everywhere. I want to ask you a, a more specific question as it relates to this big problem of personnel. And, and it really is a big problem, and different people are going to have different core competencies and talents they're going to bring to the fight. Um, the conservative lawyer the Republican lawyer, whatever you want to call it, is kind of a tough nut to crack at this point. Um, The big law firms are extremely hostile to center-right people. Um, Law school is expensive. People have a lot of debt. Um, How are you thinking about the talent pipeline for really, really sharp conservative lawyers and what the issues there are and how we might go about fixing them?
0: Oh, that's a great question. I mean, uh, unfortunately I think it begins and ends with the lawyers. This ultimately we're in Washington. It's a town of laws and, um, the lawyers run the place. So it would be kind of naive to say you can carve them out. The reality is as conservatives and, and anyone who isn't really a, a radical, we are, um, as a profession really, um, getting snowed under right now. And that's and that's a number of, of fault in that. Um, I think uh though that that Republicans and, and conservatives have not stood up in the face of kind of cancel culture and this Marxist sololensky um attacks. They they have kind of gone along to get along in in positions and big law firms and and just kind of allowed this creep over time to the point where they're just on a, a little bit of an island now. Um, how, how do we change this? Uh, I know there's hopefully a lot of good lawyers listening to this broadcast. I feel like the, the conservative lawyer could time out here in five to 10 years. It could be extinct with between the chat, GBT, and, and the uh, a willingness to like, they want to disbar anyone who takes an unpopular political mm-hmm. stance. Um, we really have to change the tide of this profession. So um, how do you do that? Well, one in in, in the admin, we want we want forward leaning people. You're not gonna get into this through accommodation and 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 kind of going back and trying to find some sort of balance. These our adversaries are not into balance. This is this is a zero sum gain right now. Game. Um so we need forward leading people. I think, what, what do you look for in that? You look for people who've actually invested a lot of their own um, sweat into uh, campaigns, into political activity, into um, issue oriented stuff. People who volunteer um, you know, to be your school board solicitor, um, who are active in kind of local politics.
1: And this Um, this is really radical, what you're saying, because the theory of the conservative legal movement for the past 40 years has been the exact opposite, is pick people who are complete cipher with no paper trail, no record, and make them the leaders of our movement. You're saying that that's been a mistake.
0: Well, yeah, I think um, exalting uh, credentials, and as someone who has pretty good credentials, um... I carved myself out from that.
1: Um, I would say, you (laughs) know, the the problem are good people.
0: (laughs) The reality is that you get to these higher echelons and you're unwilling to take a stand because, you know, whether your kids are in a school and people are looking at sconce and, you know, it's, it's, um, it's tough and, yeah. and private people, school for three private, kids and a Mercedes
1: yeah. is expensive. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, and you know, the ecosystem here relies on, on continual regeneration mm. regardless of who's in the office. So mm. you'll have people come in, get these, these nice perches, DOJ, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And, the, and they won't take a stand because they want to go back to their old perch or go to a higher place. So that doesn't help us as a movement. Um, what what would help us would be more forward-leaning people from, you know, who've out been out there in the trenches in the other 50 states. This is very trans translatable set of skills, advocacy. Um, you can't come in like a, a bull in a china shop, but at the same time you can be more missionary oriented and, you know, a little bit like I'm going back home when this ends, you know. Um, so you'll, you'll be willing to kind of go out a little bit more on a limb. Um, so I think that that's important. I, I I really encourage, uh, attorneys anywhere to get involved in their local bars. We got to take over and get back engaged in the, in the self-governance, um, and really push back against a lot of this, uh, foolishness that's going on. And, um, with,
1: with kind of some of the liberal regulators. So specifically, I think where this issue has blown up has been election integrity. I mean, you cannot be a Republican lawyer who is in the business of making sure Republicans don't get elections cheated from them and work at a top law firm anymore. How do we solve that problem?
0: That's that's a $64,000 question. I I really do think that um, some of these big firms have some anti-competitive behavior, quite honestly, um, and you'll see that in 2020. I think there needs to be some investigation of that work. When I joined the big firms in, in the late 90s, um, there were Democrats, there were Republicans, there were progressives, there were conservatives. Everyone kind of got together and... <laughs> Worked for the client, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, it's like interesting cocktail fodder about who who believes what, but um, you weren't going to be really uh, have something held against you, and certainly no one was going to attack a client. I think what happened was um, a lot of the HR, the 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 continual pursuit of of credential. Uh, meant they're going to more elite law schools. And these elite law schools in in the Boeing economy felt they could make demands on these firms and the firms all capitulated. So that was kind of the beginning of the end. But um, I think in terms of reversing the trend um, there, I, I probably have to leave it today, how, how this is gonna be done. But I do think it starts with, um, you know, getting some accountability for these big firms—they are just way too big and way too powerful. Um, two, I think that you have to take over a lot of the of the state and and local app, uh, uh, bars and the regulatory, and basically establish that uh, kind of. Uh, Political political ideology is not a basis, an adequate basis to to discriminate against folks when it comes to like operation their jobs. Now I know that could be comp- that could be seen both ways. That's something up open to debate, but in certain realms it just can't be, um, or at least it shouldn't be able to be weighed. And then you know, uh, for for election lawyering, yes, it's tough. It's it's. Um, it's a very difficult profession to do because you're under the gun. Um, you have no basis like power in terms of subpoena to get it answers. Um, so you're, you're digging for a quick investigation to try to get something into court after the election. The real work is, is before the election. So, um, people have to rethink how they're doing this work and that, and that starts, you know, with getting the right people in the Secretaries of State's offices, right people into political parties, right people into the national parties as well.
1: Paul, how can people keep up with everything that you're doing? As far as I know, you don't have a Twitter, which is very unfortunate. Um, <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure there well, is one. I know, just don't know which account it is. <laughs> Maybe it's one I, of the ones that's yelling at me all the
0: time. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. Um, i you know follow us at project 2025org dot org or at project twenty twenty five i believe is the handle um so we should be on um on twitter and i believe uh we are in the course of making other social media pages um also you can you can uh find me at heritage dot org but um i do not have a huge social media presence i do feel um that is something to keep in mind, though. I mean, there is a balance. Yeah, uh, we at you know at the federal level, um, they're always looking for reasons to undercut you. Yeah. So, uh, oh, you're be, a I, smart man
1: for not having Twitter. <laughs> it just is less entertaining for me. Yeah, yeah. no, that'd be, uh, I do not have social media. Yeah, right. well, Paul, thank you so much for everything you're doing for for being willing to you know, uh, give up on the whole Cincinnati thing and come back to DC so quickly. We need you here. Uh, and thank you for everything you do. Thank you guys. Pleasure to be with you today. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Be sure to check out heritage's website where you can sign up for project 2025 get involved with them Uh, be sure to go to our website at americanmoment.org there you can keep up with everything we're doing Uh, apply for our fellowship fill out americanmoment.org slash join uh, where you can connect with us and we can figure out how to get you involved now as quickly as possible Um, thank you as always for listening guys Uh, the backlog of this show is available to peruse at your leisure. Be sure to rate and review our podcast five stars. It really does help. And follow us on all social media platforms at ammoment.org. We'll see you guys next week. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenage. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.